City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, production. Welcome to the American Theatre Wings Working in the Theatre Seminars. Now in their 31st year, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today's seminar is devoted to the production of the Broadway musical, Urban Cowboy. With the members of its creative and production teams, we will follow the show from its beginning as a work for the stage through to the current production on Broadway. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theatre Wing. And now, with great pleasure, let me introduce our moderator for the seminar, who as a producer or a manager has gone through this process about a hundred times at least, the president of the American Theatre Wing, Roy A. Somlio. Roy, would you start? Thank, thank you, Isabel, and, and thank you, panel, for being here. Uh, let me uh, introduce this uh, group from Urban Cowboy so you can understand uh, why we're, what we're going to talk about. Uh, on my far right is Aaron Latham, who is the uh, an author and author of Urban Cowboy. Uh, seated next to him is Jason Robert Brown, a composer, musical director. And then Chase Mishkin is on my right, producer. Leonard Soloway, producer. Lonnie Price, among other things, the director of this production. And Pete Saunders, who is the public relations specialist on Urban Cowboy. Normally, when we do a uh, production seminar, we, uh, we talk about the, the genesis of it and how the show began and who had the idea and then how it came to Broadway and how it became this raging hit. Uh, we don't have quite that same story to tell this time because Urban Cowboy has yet to become a hit. It's a struggling show. And we thought, well, let's find out why is it worth struggling for. So let's, and we'll, let's, let's learn a little bit about this show. And I think maybe we should begin at the beginning. And Chase, maybe you can tell us uh, at first, give us the, the, the origins of Urban Cowboy. Uh, we all know that it, there was a movie. Now tell us what happened after that. Well, it's the same story. In the beginning was the word. Aaron Latham always had the words. He wrote the original movie. He also wrote the book for the musical. Uh, Phil Osterman, a director who uh, is well known, came to Aaron. And uh, you should really tell this part of the story. Tried to get him to do it. <coughs> well, in uh, 1997, I got a letter from somebody named Phil Osterman, whom I'd never heard of, uh, saying that I ever thought of turning Urban Cowboy the movie into Urban Cowboy the musical. And I had thought of it, but I didn't know who to talk to about it or what to do about it. Uh, so I called him up. Uh, we had lunch. We had lunch at his place, except the lunch was never served. We talked for two hours, and then he said goodbye. And I <laughs> <laughs> lunch. Um, give you a clue how it works, how it works on Broadway. Yeah, right. 
<laughs> so that was the beginning. We started meeting every day uh, at 10 o'clock and working until 1. No um, lunch. Yeah, no lunch. Right. <laughs> and that was Phil Osterman, I think. Right. Well, Phil Osterman had come from Houston, Texas, uh, which is where the Gillies Club, the honky-tonk that I wrote about, uh, well, was located. Uh, he'd worked with Tommy Toon a lot. Uh, and he really began to teach me how theater is different from movies. For instance, at the very beginning, I had a scene where my hero is falling off a tower, and in the next scene, I had him in a bathtub. And he said, not even Houdini could make that change. And then we worked into more subtle things, like the theater being a little more direct than movies, and, and nobody can see your eyes batting from the third balcony. Uh, so he, he really began to teach me how, how this thing works. I think uh, it's important uh, that we explain that uh, Phil Osman passed away uh, before the total realization of this before production. Before we started rehearsals, <coughs> he passed away. So let's see. With the help of Phil, you, you created a script. Right. right. And now with the script, what happened? Well, we started having uh, read readings in my apartment. Uh, and Mike Nichols came to an early reading and liked what he saw and gave us $50,000, which was a fortune for us. Uh, it was early money, and we needed it. We had, then we had readings at Lincoln Center. Then we did uh, a production in Gloucester, Massachusetts one summer. Uh, and then Chase and Leonard came into our lives and really saved us and put us on the right road. Well, Aaron, what, what kind of music were you uh, using at that time for the, for the production? Well, our first thought was they would all be Clint Black songs, because uh, uh, my partner uh, thought that he was a really close friend of Clint Black's. But when we asked Clint if he was willing to write a whole bunch of songs for a Broadway musical, he said he had other things to do, and uh, <laughs> and uh, anyway, he wasn't that good a friend as it turned out. So then we started. Uh, <laughs> then we started working with just existing country music and picked out all our favorite songs, existing songs. Uh, and so the first couple of readings, there was no original. We had three songs from the mo from the movie, "Looking for Love," "Devil Went Down to Georgia," and "Could I Have This Dance for the Rest of My Life." Um, and then we just plugged in country hits that we liked for the rest of the music. Um, several years later, we began to get more serious and went down to Nashville and auditioned songwriters. We had songwriters coming in every 15 minutes and playing songs they thought would work for the movie and listening to my spiel about the, some specific songs that I wanted. Like I wanted a bull song, I wanted a breaking up song, which it turns out Jason wrote in the end. <laughs> uh, so we got some original music from Nashville. Uh, and then when Jason came on board, I think, think the first 15 minutes he was hired, he wrote the first song. <laughs> and it's been going at that clip ever since. <laughs> well, uh, let's see. Then at this point, let me, Leonard, Yes, right? let me sort it out a little yeah. bit for you. They finally realized it might be, might be nice to have producers. <laughs> so Leonard and I did indeed come on board, and uh, we prepared to do a workshop, which we did in New York. It wasn't very good. It was really pretty bad. And after the workshop, we looked at each other and said, okay, now our work is cut out for us. We know what we have to do. 
So the entire script was rewritten. Everybody was recast, everybody, except I think one dancer uh, we retained to this time. And we kind of started doing the work from there. Unfortunately, uh, Phil passed away in, in the summer, and we were really blessed to get Lonnie Price to come on board to direct. And at that time, uh, we realized also we needed a genius in the music department, so we got Jason Robert Brown. And you've done very well. With who, did all, who did all the material-specific songs, which you have to have in a musical to move the story along. Lonnie was instrumental in working with Aaron. It's a collaborative process, as you know, and these guys did it. They were terrific, all of them. Well, well don't forget, though, that before the uh, workshop, uh, our director, uh, who had uh, a heart problem, uh, had oh, to have open-heart right. surgery. That's right. So he had uh, no time to recover. We were, we were doing the workshop at Westbeth, where you have to climb up three flights of stairs, and he had just had open-heart surgery, and he had to rest a lot, and so he was really not totally focused no. on he was, the workshop. That's right. That's As he was going true. in for his open-heart surgery, I said to him, break a heart. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. And he did. <laughs> This, this kind of set the tone for the entire <laughs> <laughs> There's always the crisis of the day, really, the crisis of the day. But actually, the way we got involved is that Mike Nichols called me uh, one morning right. about two years ago and said, I went to a, uh, a reading of a new musical last night, and it was wonderful, and they don't have a producer, and you should get involved with it. So I, I didn't know how Mike got there, but it's no secret, I think, that Erin is married to Leslie Stahl, uh, and one of her best buddies is Diane Sawyer, who's married to Mike Nichols. So when Leslie asked Diane to come to the reading, she brought Mike, and that's really how we got involved. Do you know, it occurs to me that um, maybe people don't know, not enough people have seen Urban Cowboy yet. It's only been open for a month. It's Irving Cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, uh, maybe we should uh, just uh, have a clip of it so you can get an idea. We have a general uh, uh, montage of it. So why don't we just look at that tape now? I said, hey, good L-O-O-K-I-N-G. I smell T-R-O-U-B-L-E, yeah. I was a little bitty baby when my papa hit the skids. Mama had a time trying to raise nine kids. She told me not to stare cause it was impolite She did the best she could to try to raise me right But mama never told me about nothing like while you I bet your mama must have been a good looking honey too I said hey good L-O-O-K-I-N-G I smell T-R-O-U-B-L-E Yeah Alright now Good job Sweet talking, sexy walking, hunky talking lady. The men are gonna love you and the women gonna hate you. Reminding them of everything they're never gonna be. Maybe the beginning of a World War III. The world ain't ready for nothing like while you. Yeah, I bet your mama must have been a good looking hunter too. Hey, I said, hey, good L double O K I N G. I smell T R O U B L E. I said, hey! I said, hey! 
Story of urban combo. <laughs> yeah. Pete, as the press representative, did you put that uh, together? We did. We yes. we shot that and edited it, and it's part of the B-roll that goes out to all. It's a great clip. Press. Mm -hmm. It sort of gives you the idea in a nutshell, in, a, in about a minute's time, of what the show is about. Right. I, I think I think that, that probably the first time a, a show uh, has done something like that. Certainly for country music, uh, it's a great way to introduce the show. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, very impressive uh, mm -hmm. with it. No. Did you direct in, uh, uh, each aspect of this, Lonnie, or just the, uh, of the, the piece that we just saw? I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's terrific, though. I mean, obviously, sure. it's clips from you know our production, yes. which is uh, very exciting to see. I think it's a great job. Yeah. Uh, I was quite impressed mm -hmm. with it, and I think an audience will be. And, and uh, if enough people see that, It'll I think nice. it'll make a difference. Well, let's pick up the story. Now, uh, you've, um, you've gotten uh, everybody on board. And at this point, uh, you said you did the workshop, and your work was cut out for you. Um, you're going to have to tell what a producer does by telling us what happened. What's the next step? What does a producer do now with your work? Why don't you answer you? this, Leonard? <laughs> <laughs> well, from uh, the workshop, the decision was whether to continue or not, because That's the right. workshop uh, was an absolute disaster. <laughs> and, uh, and unfortunately, uh, the creme de la creme of the American theater was present at these workshop presentation. So, uh, you know, Jerry Schoenfeld, everybody was looking at us as though we were out of our minds. Uh, but uh, Chase, more than I, was very emotionally involved with the play. And uh, we felt that if we replaced some of the actors, and for no fault of their own, they were very talented, but uh, somewhat miscast, uh, and, and rewrote what we thought we'd le We learned a great deal from the workshop of what, where to go with the show, basically. I think you should explain uh, pretty much what, what is a workshop uh, for... Well, it's, a, uh, it's, it's really a, a staged rehearsal that uh, uh, we had two weeks... Well, two weeks rehearsal, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, two weeks rehearsal, and uh, uh, people are carrying books. Uh, but there is music, there was a small band playing, and it is somewhat directed uh, and somewhat choreographed. Uh, and it's done in a rehearsal uh, room uh, with uh, just a suggestion of costumes and practically no scenery. Uh, and we invite everybody, uh, try to get those people in the theater that might be interested in investing in the show, the theater owners and individual producers. Uh, to come and see it, and in, in some cases, uh, well, as in, um, um, what was the show at the Beck, uh, The Sweet Smell of Success, uh, I think they only did one of these, uh, and it was so successful that they raised all the money with no problem whatsoever. Of course, that doesn't mean the show's going to work, because it didn't eventually work. Uh, it, it was the reverse with us. We had a lot of trouble, uh, as a result of the workshop, getting uh, uh, people interested in helping us financially. Uh, but then Arnold Middleman, who runs the Coconut Grove Playhouse in Miami, uh, had a show drop out uh, for October. And uh, we had been talking, and I mentioned the show to him, and we, and we sent him the script and a, uh, a CD of the music that we were using at that time. Uh, and he uh, said that he would put it into that slot. 
And it was, that was last summer, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. God, is that all? It feels like <laughs> 10 years ago. <laughs> uh, and, and we were only about, what, four weeks away from rehearsal when uh, Phil died? I died in, at the end of July, mm -hmm. so it was a little, little bit more. But yeah, we, we, were, were yeah. we were just a couple of weeks away from rehearsal when Lonnie came on board. When did you come in? What was well, I, uh, um, I had just gotten back from Japan. Uh, I was doing a Chase's show, a class act in Tokyo. I was performing in it and, uh, with the original cast, and uh, I got back to find this uh, message from Chase to call her. And uh, Chase had told me that uh, Phil had... It's clear that Chase had also pr had produced the class yeah, act. Chase was class act, and as well as the Sweeney Todd uh, DVD and video that I that I directed. So um, Chase has been my friend and supporter for many years now, and lucky for me. So when she called, uh, she said, uh, you know, uh, Phil had passed away, and would I be interested in the material? And um, uh, I had. Uh, I, I said no. I said no. Essentially, <laughs> I'm a planner. You have to see. I say I'm a planner, and this was five weeks before they started. And I was doing this uh, Merrily We Roll Along reunion concert for my theater, musical theater works, uh, which was to happen September 30th, and they were going to rehearsal, I think, October 1st. Right. And so I thought that wasn't quite enough time to figure it out. Um, and I said no a couple of times, and then um, I said, here's what I will do, is let me meet with Aaron. I think that there are some dramaturgical issues that m I might be useful for. So uh, I met with Aaron, and... Um, and pretty much fell in love with Aaron is really the truth. Is every everything that I had wanted to do with the show from what I had seen in the workshop, Aaron said, I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> so I, it was very confusing to me because Phil had had very different ideas and this, the ideas that I had had were ideas that Aaron shared. So that made me think, well, this is insane. I really don't have the time to do this. Um, but a couple of things. One is uh, I believe very much in loyalty and it doesn't exist very much in the theater. And uh, it does with me, and it does with Chase. And uh, I came in because Chase had been there for me at all times, and I thought it was selfish of me to not do this, and I thought, I need to do that. So that came to me first. That was the main reason I said yes. And then I met with Aaron, and Aaron, everything that Aaron had wanted to do, I had wanted to do. The, the workshop had a very interesting uh, and, and for my taste sort of peculiar choice which was for instance the chorus didn't sing or talk they would come on and dance and then they would leave and I thought that was a, a rather odd thing for a musical so I suggested that they sang and that they also that also the music was instrumental in the storytelling the musical the music that they had was largely decorative or um, in some ways, uh, the songs would happen after the events of the scenes. So my instinct was, why don't we incorporate the music into the show? There are a lot of weaves in the show where there's dialogue amidst songs. And uh, Aaron and I put them together with the original musical directors, some of them, before Jason came on board. And so we started, I started trying to make it a musical, to have the songs not only reveal character, move the story forward, and comment, but that the songs themselves would be part of the storytelling structure of the show, which they were not in the in the workshop for, I guess, a reason that Phil Phil somehow did not want that style show. Well, well Phil's concept, I'm sorry, okay. uh, uh, Phil's concept of the show, I really I, was a play with music. Most of the numbers were presentational and were done on the bandstand, right? Uh, and were uh, except for looking for love, uh, which. But most of them were uh, uh, numbers that were done in the club that were outside of the 
uh, love story, but did have uh, did comment on the story. And what Lonnie did was that he made it into a musical, which is what Chase and oh, I have no, been trying to do from <laughs> uh, day one with the show. But I, I do have to say that uh, for for Lonnie to have undertaken this, I mean, you have to understand it wasn't just the time slot. Uh, the limitations of time, but he came into a show that had already been designed. We had scenery, we had costumes that had already been cast. Uh, we had uh, there were he had to take this package uh, as a whole that he had uh, no uh, hand in creating, which is an enormous uh, handicap for a director. Uh, we did make some uh, uh, cast changes before we opened uh, in the Coconut Grove and uh, wisely so uh, for what we were going for and trying to make it uh, more of a, a musical. But uh, you, you, it's amazing what he did in that period of time, considering that he was working with uh, a, a, a concept that was not his to begin with. I'm not clear about uh, the uh, I want to ask about workshops. Are workshops a necessity? Because, Roy, isn't it something in the past 20 years that's come about? Yes, uh, it is. I mean, you addressed Roy, I'm sorry. To well, I think a little longer than that because the chorus line was the first one that uh, really worked uh, through that, that procedure and it became so successful that people learned that was the way to do it. There are two kinds of workshops. One is where you just work exclusively on the material itself and you just develop the material. There's a second kind, which I think is what you use, which is to introduce that material to investors for, for uh, and uh, uh, Today, it's almost essential that you have a workshop so you can see what the material is. You, everybody has to look at it. How they learned an enormous amount. How, it's how it, it's anywhere from a hundred thousand to five hundred thousand dollars, depending on it's how uh, how complicated you want to get. Don't forget, in the old days, uh, you know, when I was a kid doing shows like Fade Out, Fade In, and High Spirits, we'd go to New Haven, and then we'd go to Philadelphia, and then we'd go to Boston. We'd be on the road for twelve weeks, and we had time to fix whatever was wrong with the show. And, and shows, I mean, uh, Fade Out, Fade In cost $600,000. It was the most expensive musical ever done at the time. Uh, and it wasn't a problem to raise that kind of money. But now when you're talking about uh, four to $10 million, uh, it's, it's uh, uh, unless you get somebody who's gonna give you hunks of money, you can't go to 50 people for, you know, 200,000 bucks a piece, because I mean, I don't know 50 people. <laughs> <laughs> what percentage of money did you raise through the workshops? Zero. <laughs> well, no, Mike, 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 oh, stay, Mike, Mike, stayed, stayed in. Mike Nichols stayed in, and somebody else who contributed the workshop uh, presentation stayed in. And the Schuberts uh, contributed to a, a certain amount to the production as well. It was sub subsequent to the workshop, but before you went to Florida? I think it was after Florida. Well, uh, it was after Florida, but, mm. well, you know, they, uh, the Schuberts are very supportive of, uh, uh, of people in the in industry, and uh, they were very helpful to us. I just want to add something just uh, parenthetically, which I think is, is too bad, and it's uh, not to get a soapbox about it, but when shows cost $600,000, they didn't need to appeal to vast majorities of people uh, globally and around, you know, it, they could get their money back in six months or eight months and make a profit in a year. And, shows that have to raise $10 million and those sort of things. I think we've dumbed down the kind of innovation that we can expect on Broadway because the shows now need to be 
they need to run five years, they need to appeal to a lot of people, and the, the homogenization of them has, I think, really hurt the creativity of the theater, which is, I think, a really sad thing. I wish the economics were not what they are, and um, it's too bad. I think if you look at the street and you see a lot of revivals, a lot of composers and lyricists that are tried and true, a lot of them in their 60s and 70s, and, you know, for people like Jason and young composers and lyricists, it's really tough to get someone to say, I'll give you $10 million. Um, whereas if it was 600000 or a million dollars, we might see a lot more interesting work than we're seeing. Um, a lot more new a work. A lot more new work. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a sad state of the theater. But anyway, every time I hear that $600,000 or Fiddler was produced for three or, you know, Follies at seven hundred was the biggest ever or seven fifty, you know, and you think the shows that I grew up loving probably never would have been done today because they wouldn't have been able to raise that kind of money. I'm just up. Lonnie, I don't think it's quite as dismal a picture as you paint it, because there are avenues now for all kinds of shows to develop in our regional theaters. And musicals are now even being done in musical It's uh, tough to, I've done regions. them. It's tough to do them in regional theaters. They don't have the money for the orchestration. They don't have the money for copying. I mean, it's, it's, I, it has, can be done, That's but so it is tricky. It it's really tricky to do them there. You, well, you, you see, you do have, for, for, take example of what you've just done. Uh, you went down to, uh, to Coconut Grove Playhouse yeah. in Florida, and you enhanced it with yes, money. Yes, right. I these was just say, we these did, producers yeah. enhanced it. And it's that, if you can't go out, and certainly we know how difficult it is to raise 100000 today. Yeah, yeah. When you're talking about $10 million. But uh, there are ways of, uh, and, and, uh, of necessity now that these are getting done. Otherwise, we wouldn't have uh, Jason here to, uh, on our platform. I want to get back to that, though, Jason. Thus far, we haven't found your niche in this show. So why don't you just tell us how you got into it? Um, when, uh, well, I can tell the long version or the short version, but I'll tell the short tell version. The short version. Yeah. Tell the long version when you call What happens is that, that I, really uh, I, uh, I saw that Lonnie had taken over. I knew Phil. I had worked with Phil many years ago. Uh, we had done a musical written by Yoko Ono called New York Rock, which uh, <laughs> none of you are sorry you missed. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so I had known Phil briefly, and, and, you know, I had heard that he was working on, on Urban Cowboy, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And um, then Phil died, and I thought, oh, goodness gracious, well, I guess that's the end of Urban Cowboy. What a shame. And, uh, and then I saw that Lonnie was attached to it. And at the time, I had, I had sort of stopped writing, uh, which I can make to sound more melodramatic than it is, but I just thought, of that, I don't need to do this right now. I, and I, I had sort of retired. So, uh, and I was just sitting around, and I called Lonnie, and I said, look, I, I, I'm not doing much. Maybe I could orchestrate the show. Maybe you need an orchestrator. And, uh, and Lonnie said, well, the, the guy that Phil hired is still on board, and he's still doing it, so uh, I don't need anybody to do that. I said, oh, okay, well, you know, I called. Uh, it was worth a shot. I've always thought orchestrating was one of the great shell games of all uh, Broadway. It's, just, it, it, it's, it's, you know, you sit at home by yourself, you write a couple of charts, you make some cash, you go home. It's, it's, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not a bad gig if you know how to do it. So, uh, so I thought, that's it, I'll be an orchestrator. So, um, but, but that was the end of that, and I said, okay, and I went off to Hawaii to conduct some symphony orchestra doing some strange Broadway program. It was bizarre. Anyway, uh, I came back, and... Uh, I was just doing some concerts. I mean, I wasn't doing a whole lot. And Lonnie called me, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, what do you mean, now? He said, no, I mean, what are you doing, doing? And I said, really? I'm just hanging out. He said, uh... So what are you wearing, Jason? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I, I said, uh, you know, I'm not doing much. I mean, I've got some commissions, little things I'm working on. He said, well, why, uh, you know, do you want to come in and take a look at Urban Cowboy? I said, why? He said, well, I'm not sure that the guy we have is working out. And I said, um... 
Okay, I mean, you mean just to orchestrate? He said, no, 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 to, to, you know, you'd be playing piano on stage, and you'd be music directing, and there's actually, there's a song that you would sing, and then, uh, you know, there's, you know, it, it, there's an arranging to do, and I said, um, how much is done now? He said, well, uh, nothing, really. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, I mean, when you say nothing, he said, well, no, I mean, everyone's singing in unison, and the dance arrangements change every day. I said, oh, so nothing. He said, yeah, nothing. <laughs> I said, when do you go into tech? He said, in a week. <laughs> I said, a week from today, he said, yeah, a week from today, we go to Florida and we start our tech rehearsal. <laughs> and I said, um, okay, well, this is interesting. Let me come take a look at it. And I came and I took a look at the rehearsal. And, uh, and I was very impressed with what Lonnie had done in terms of how the show was moving. And I was particularly impressed with the, uh, the girl who was cast in the lead, uh, Jen Kalala, who I thought was magnificent. And I thought, Great. gee, I want to work with that. I want to work with this situation. Uh, but the music department was a mess, and uh, and I said, I, uh, look, you're in trouble. I don't know how to do this in a week. And Lonnie said, well, just do what you can. Will you do what you can? And I said, well, uh, look, there's a larger problem that I, I, which is that there are some moments that are just sort of missing, you know, the musical moments that are missing. And there was sort of a silence on the phone, and he said, well, you write songs. <laughs> um, and I said, well, I, well, um, okay, I, you know, maybe I can do that too. Uh, so. It then transpired that uh, we had, I mean, we left literally a week later. I came on board and we had a week of rehearsals in New York, during which I was doing a big concert also at the same time. But we did the, uh, a week of rehearsals in New York and we went to Florida. And uh, in the space between the time I came on board and the time we opened, I wrote five songs for the show. Um, I orchestrated the entire show, did all the vocal arrangements and all the dance arrangements. And I was playing in the show and I, I sang a number at the top of the second act. And um, and I still can't quite believe that I did that, but <laughs> you, did. you sure did. So, he so was very tired. <laughs> you were only sleeping three hours a night. Nobody right. else could have done it. He really is a genius. With Thank music. God for Have you ever written this kind of music before? Uh, you know, uh, people ask me that as though what I've written in, in, is only Mahler. I, you know, I, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, I've written music in a popular vein before, and I grew up playing in this style. You know, mm -hmm. a honky tonk piano is sort of the most comfortable thing for me to play. Well, that's also what he said when he called. When he called, which, by the way, was a great thing because I would never have thought of Jason because I think of Jason as this great songwriter, and I would never have thought that he'd be interested in musical directing or orchestrating or arranging or any of that. Well, orchestrating is a cinch, you see. You don't have to worry. About it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go into it now. Yeah, how much cash there is in it? Um, but he was—I um, didn't realize that his skill bank was so so right for this show in terms of that he could do all of those things. But that he said to me, "I have an affinity for this kind of music," and I wouldn't have known that. Nor would I again have thought that he would be interested in doing this sort of work. So as soon as this other gentleman who we had. And uh, it was it was really a disaster of enormous proportions. And the cast would say to me, you know, we're really having a problem with the music director. And I kept thinking, I had fired a whole bunch of people. I wasn't firing anybody else. You know, I felt like every time I little did you know, <laughs> every time I'd call someone to a room, you know, people would be you know be dead bodies behind me. So I thought I'm going to not fire anybody else. Um, but then I sat through a music rehearsal where. Um, uh, it was very clear that, that uh, he just didn't have a handle on the show, nor on the cast. I mean, that the cast was just, it, it was mayhem. So uh, when Jay, then I remembered and I thought, I need to help, and, and the idea that we could get someone as good as Jason to do this. The other problem is, is that the score, because we were using a lot of songs that are classic songs, what they never did was reveal character because they weren't written specifically for any of our characters. So aside from moving the plot along, which the score needed to do, it also needed to reveal character. And 
uh, Jeff Blumenkrantz uh, wrote a couple of songs for us before Jason even. One, actually. One or two. I'm not two. even sure. Yeah, two. two. Uh, before Jason. And then Jason came along and said, I think there are more spots that you need help. And I thought, we sure do. Great. How lucky am I to have Jason as the musical director, who also is this spectacular songwriter. So it really worked out. We were really lucky to get him, and that he was that quick. The other thing about Jason that I just want to tell you, too, is, is that he's a spectacular musical director in terms of keeping the band together. I mean, we would put in changes in previews, which we'll get to, where a song went in and out. We, we rewrote, we're starting here, we're going from there, and I would see him with the band. he go, okay, we're going number one, you're cutting to number three B, and then you move it. And the, the clarity with which he worked and the speed and the specificity was really dazzling. And I've been in a lot of musicals that were in trouble and on the road and had a lot of changes being done. But I've never seen anybody attack them with such, uh, um, such quickness and speed and, uh, which is the same thing, uh, such... Um, <laughs> Velocity. Such <laughs> and he really is genius at it. I mean, he was and really altitude. extraordinary. It's really extraordinary. I've never seen anything like it. In so. addition to which, he's a sensational pianist. Oh, Yes. Beyond great. Those of us who've seen great. the show, those just few great. of us yeah. who've seen the show, can attest to that. <laughs> yeah. I, I just want to say one thing: that the uh, that the the musical director that was replaced uh, is was not untalented. His style of working was not Lonnie's style. What, the style that he was working in was what he'd gotten from the previous director, who was not uh, a very organized person, and that was just the way he functioned. Mm -hmm. It was sort of coming out of summer stock time, you know, well, let's, let's do this and have a good time. It was, the, the workshop was totally disorganized, uh, but it was the way that, that he worked and, that, and the musical director picked that up from, you know, it was a hangover from the workshop. What seems to be happening is that you, you looked at the workshop, you thought it was a disastrous, but you no, knew... No, we knew it was a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you knew there was something there. You knew there was something there Absolutely. To, to it's an Americana love story. So you got... <clears throat> so you then got it down to Florida, and at this point, it's Well, wait, we, we, we didn't get it down to Florida, <laughs> <laughs> because when we got to Florida, uh, we discovered that... I, I wasn't there. I just started getting phone calls from, <laughs> from Lonnie and Chase that none of the scenery wasn't ready to start techs. Because what they had not told us was that they did not have the technical uh, ability to build this show, which was a very complicated. How do you get a theater? You've got everything. What, how do you get your theater? Well, it was Arnold Middleman at the Coconut Grove uh, who had said that he would do the show, and they were building the scenery for us to our specifications. But when they got there, the scenery was not built. I mean, for instance, they built the turntable, and then they addressed the fact of how to motorize it to make it move, instead of working <laughs> from the, yeah, you know what I'm saying. It, so it, it was a nightmare. I mean, the, the, not only could he not do a tech rehearsal, but the frustration of being in Florida in the theater, rehearsing upstairs, and not being able to be on stage. And then when we finally got on stage, there was never a rehearsal where something didn't happen. Didn't As a break. matter of fact, even after we opened, there was never a performance where something didn't happen. At first, the turntable didn't turn, and the mechanical bull didn't buck. <laughs> <laughs> and the turntable not only was supposed to turn, but it tracked up and down stage. 
uh, which it wouldn't do, or it would do with by itself, or the first performance we finally did, we canceled four previous. Well, we had to stop one show about uh, the third end of the first. We did act. just the first yeah, act. We did it, we, the first performance. We did. We did the first act, and it took two hours and twenty-five minutes to get through <laughs> the first act. <laughs> and uh, we interpolated several songs that were not on the score at that point, merely because actors would come on stage, and Lonnie would say, "Why don't you do a number to entertain <laughs> the audience while they're waiting for the set to change?" Uh, and so Roz. Uh, Roz did Think, uh, <laughs> Frank, uh, yeah. little Aretha Franklin song. We, we, uh, Stand By Your Man, the band did as, a, as an instrumental tune. What I do want to say, though, at that disastrous first preview, the show got a standing ovation. The first act got a standing ovation. <laughs> <laughs> there was something about playing this show in that theater in Florida. They loved it from the first, from that terrible first act. They loved it. I mean, they stood up. They were so mad that after two and a half hours, we said, please go home because we really can't put the They said, we don't care. <laughs> Just do it. Just do it. They would have moved the bull themselves. Until we closed. You know, it was great working on a show in an environment that loved it. They just, and that's it. You know, that's more of our stories. When we came here, the difference in the reaction to the show was, um, was frightening. But you see, it, it, it's funny now, but it was not funny. It wasn't funny. 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 <laughs> it certainly uh, wasn't funny. We had an actor who was walking around singing, Will I take this show for the rest of my life? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and in stagehand, bolt, uh, the bolt you know, collapsed on his hand, had to go oh, to the hospital. Yeah. I mean, there was every day was oh, just another disaster. In addition to which, we all gained 20 pounds because every time something <laughs> terrible happened, we go have a gelato <laughs> or a piece of pizza. <laughs> My image of Florida is, is, is Leonard coming down the aisle with 12 ice cream cones. <laughs> <laughs> At like 2 in the morning, just saying, coffee, chocolate, what do you want? Okay, we've got the theater. So now go on. You've got the theater. Now what happens? In Florida, we have no, the theater. Well, we, 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 we work like crazy. Unfortunately, we were delayed because of the set, which yeah. is... And then, you know, here we have the strike. I mean, every time we did the show, we had a whole problem. But because what you want to do in a new musical is work on it. You, want to, you need to put it up there and see how it's working, see how the numbers are working, see how they're leading into each other, see how the book scenes are working, let alone the performances. But we spend a lot of time just trying to get the show not to stop. Checking, just checking. <laughs> just to get it to the end, that that was really, it was really problematic. But we, we, we did a lot of We started a list of things that we said we'll change in That's New York. Right. In fact, one of the popular oh, yeah. T-shirts among Open the cast and crew is, we'll change it on Broadway. We'll <laughs> fix it when we get to Broadway, is <laughs> what they wrote on it. Because we, 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 there were things we couldn't do there. There were just things, certainly anything technical was a disaster there. So, but also that's your, part of your point about regional theaters. They were not able to do the show we needed them to do, though they committed to it, though they said they could, um, because they just weren't equipped to do the kind of musical. And by the way, we're talking about a turntable which has existed for thousands of years in the theater <laughs> and drops. I'm not talking hydraulics. I'm not talking any chandeliers falling. A turntable and drops. That's it. It was not a complicated set. Well, this that, is not brain surgery. You know? One thing I want to mention is that uh, it, it's true of all of these regional theaters that there's this syndrome that they don't want to tell you that they can't do something. They're, they're very prideful of what they do. And they think, well, that they, they resent what they think are professional people coming in to help them. Because I offered early on to bring people down from New York from the shop to help. And they said, no, no, we don't need it. Well, guess what? We ended up bringing them down from New York anyway, only it cost four times as much 
because they were right. working 24 That's hours right. a day to fix their, you know, what they had uh, messed up. And, and they all had good intentions, and, and the, the head carpenter actually was a terrific guy. But it w they just did not have the ability to make this stuff be ready for us. And the fact that nobody said to us, hey, don't come down on Sunday because we're not going to be ready for you. I mean, the whole company schleps down there. They were very high, you know, after some, uh, we did some uh, rehearsals in New York with uh, friends coming in to see them, and everybody was very high. And then to get down there, it was like hitting a brick wall. Well, well we let's see what happened, though. Let's well, see what yeah. happened. Well, excuse me. Mm -hmm. You did a disastrous workshop. <laughs> Notwithstanding that, you went down to Florida and you, you started out in disaster. Yeah. And how long were you down there? Four weeks. Two years. We ran for four weeks. We played for four weeks. Rehearsed for two. We for six years and we ran for four right. weeks. <laughs> but, but at that time, at that time, had you plans for New York? Had you done anything about uh, capitalizing it for New York? What was uh, Well, we first of all, you have to understand, we got a great audience reaction always down there. And we also got good reviews down there. Mm -hmm. So, of course, we started talking to people in New York. And Leonard was instrumental in obtaining a theater in New York for us, the Schubert House, mm -hmm. which we're, we're very happy about. Uh, then we came to New York. Ah, so that despite the troubles down there, you had them... Uh, Kind of had them fixed so that you could you felt oh. you could come to New York. At what well, point? Well, the audience loved it, and, oh, and no, we I'm knew the work we still wanted to do. Right. That's but so basically, true. you know, you're getting a standing ovation every night of people cheering and screaming. It's the best thing they've seen in ten years. It's pretty heartening. You know, you think, wow, we we really do have something here. So uh, it was very easy to, to to think that you know this was a, a a show that was certainly Broadway bound. Pete, were you on board at that point? Uh, I was on board, and we started to. I was on board actually a little after the workshop and, and we started to make the plans of, of the press and marketing campaign. Unfortunately, we were at a little disadvantaged at the beginning in Florida because that, was, that would be a situation where we would be able to send people down to see the show as far as press and TV. And, and every time I would say, we have someone going down there, Chase would go, uh-uh, you can't, send them back. You know, so <laughs> so we, we, we couldn't use that time for our purposes to really uh, start the ball rolling with New York press and with the word in New York. So we were under a little disadvantage because it wasn't until the end of the run where things were running smoothly Smooth that we got to bring people down there. And so normally you would have X amount of months before to really create the campaign and we really, as everyone had, was just very, everyone involved in this panel came on this in a very short time frame and, and as we did too. So it was, uh, it was a little bit harder and more of a challenge to all of a sudden have the show come to New York within a month of it closing in Florida. But you had you had good re reviews in Florida. To yes, we, did. we yes, had the we good did. reviews, and that you know that works to a certain extent, but it doesn't always work in New York. I mean, they have, you know New York critics and the New York press like to think that they're the ones in command, and, and they're not going to listen well, to someone. You, you can't use those reviews no, uh, before not. you open in New York, as you well know, because the, the critics in New York resent uh, the fact that you are extolling your property. No, they want to discover it first. Yeah, they want to be the discoveries. But one thing was that Lonnie had in, rightly so insisted that there be four, um, four weeks of previews. Uh, before the critics arrived, so we, we, we knew that we would have time to fix what, uh, what was wrong 
what needed to be fixed when we were leaving Florida. Of course, that got all screwed up when the musician strike happened, and the poor guy lost a week uh, uh, with what we were doing, uh, what we had to do in case there was a strike. Uh, and then when the, the, the theaters closed down. And there's a whole different aura about bringing shows to New York now because um, years ago you could go out of town, like Leonard said, and you could go to New Haven. And even though New Haven was close or Boston was close, you were able to work on the shows without people really knowing about it, or the general public or the general press. I mean, that was assumed that you work internet. on the show. Well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> because of the internet um, right now, I mean, I think before a show even finishes the first preview, there are people on the internet writing reviews right. on it. That's so there's right. no way of, of really having that situation where you can really work on a show and really change things and improve things or cut things without everyone knowing about it and everyone assuming the show is in trouble or not in trouble. Well, there's another thing I'd like to bring up is that we are, we are so high-tech in the theater now that it is it's time-consuming. Mm -hmm. uh, what it does do is that once you get it, you've got it for all time because it's locked into a computer. But we used to change the musical number 30 years ago uh, in an afternoon. You can't do that now. You've got to bring in a very light programmer and a programmer for the slides, and they get 500 bucks a day, and they're all sitting there and the lighting people, and, and it's a nightmare to, to, make, to make two light cue changes in a number is a nightmare today. It used to be done with a guy on a piano board, you know, in two minutes, and now it takes an hour or two hours. Well, it's all the mechanized scenery as well is all computerized, and so it's not just, oh, move the cue here. You have to redo the cues from the beginning of the act because the turntable's in a different... It's a lot of stuff now. You're lucky you find these people for $500 a day. You didn't mean that. You meant by the hour. I no, it's a... Well, that's not bad. Those are $3,500. Do you make $3,500 a week? The, uh, I think, though, let's see what happened. You left Florida, and you, were, you knew you were going to go to Broadway then. You, yes. And during that time, you arranged for, for the theater. Right. Well, actually, we, we were hoping to get the music box, and uh, uh, I, was, I was very upset when Jerry gave it to Barry and Fran for The Miracle Worker. But as it turned out, it worked in our favor because uh, they couldn't replace Vanessa... Uh, Williams in, uh, into, the woods. into the woods, so they announced their closing, and that fit in with our time schedule, and, and Jerry and Phil did give us uh, the Broadhurst, which is, uh, you know, a, a, a fabulous, yeah. one of the top That's great Broadway. Greater capacity, great greater yes. capacity than music box. Right. And, uh, well, now when do we get to the unions and the business of it? How do you... Unions? Are there unions? <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Uh, well, we, we had no union problems except uh, when except the, they all the musicians. The <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we got a call at, uh, at 5 to 6 on a Friday. Uh, I got a call to come up to the meeting at the, at the league, and uh, we're the, well, the theaters are closing down. The actors are going on strike, uh, are going to, uh, uh, you know, what do you call it? Support, not support the strike. Well, I think also during the, the musician strike, it was, it was a time where Lonnie really needed to rehearse the cast, and I think a lot of that time had to be devoted to working with the virtual orchestra or the taped orchestra, as what, in what case. So that, that took a lot of time out of the actual preview rehearsal time because they knew that this strike might happen, and... But then we, then we were locked out of the theaters. I mean, I called them at 5 to 6 and said, you've got to leave the theater. And they were in the middle of rehearsal. 
and uh, there was going to be no performance. We had done, what, three previews or something? What are the I previews? don't know. Two or three. Something like that. And uh, so we lost Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And we were back on Tuesday. But, but the, pre the previous week we were rehearsing with the tape, so we couldn't do anything new. Well, we couldn't make any changes well, because we were so... For clarity, yes, I think for clarity, yeah. uh, you were on your... You, uh, you, were, you had set your preview schedule, mm -hmm. and at that time, I think that uh, nobody knew what was going to happen with the musicians, so you did tape the show. Is that it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you could rehearse with the tape. Uh, no, no, I had nothing agree? to do with no, the tape. No, no, we went to Dallas and recorded all the music. So you had, you had the music recorded. You had the music recorded so that you could continue That's possibly right. rehearsing. Right. And, yeah. uh, and performing in the case Whether or not you're going to use that tape uh, for the show is not uh, It was mostly about, about performing, Roy. It, it actually was. The, the, it. Yeah, the tape was actually made in the event that the musicians <coughs> struck. If Equity had not uh, withheld this, you know, held the strike, uh, we would uh, have played that night with the tape music. Right. So you had had a couple, but you had a couple of previews with live performances. Yes. Li live musicians. As and live as Jason could be. <laughs> <laughs> I can't speak for the other musicians, but I understand. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then the musicians, uh, were, then the work stoppage, which uh, uh, went through the industry. And, Listen. And, and no, no musicals performed uh, on Broadway. So. Uh, now that lasted, uh, that strike lasted uh, Friday, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. For the long weekend, in which time you suspended performances. And, and rehearsals. And, and rehearsals, and rehearsals because, the, because the... Couldn't call the well, equity, the equity was honoring the picket line also, yes, so until right. the musicians so the, went back to Which it. was very strange because they allowed Gypsy and the Look of Love to continue rehearsals, but they were not in the theater. They weren't you in were previews yet, but we yeah, were. But you already, so you we were rehearsed. We were in previews, yeah. So, you know... There used to be a, uh, an Al Cap cartoon in Little Abner, yeah. and there was a man named Joe Blitzflick. And every time Joe Blitzflick came on, there was a gray cloud over <laughs> his head. Right. And uh, this sounds like you were, this show was the Joe Blitzflick. Nothing ever happened easy for you. That's no. right. No, but listen, I just, I just want to say that we did persevere, because look what happened. We, in, we, we hinged our advertising campaign on a great commercial that we did. So we get through the we get through the strike. We hadn't had time to make the changes. The previews were still old numbers that we knew were coming out. We still kept going. We still the day before the first critic came is the first time this piece was whole and finished. The day before. So we had by that a lot of people from the internet, a lot of people from wherever who'd seen previews that weren't very good either. It was just mind-boggling. Then of course we declared war. And they preempted our television commercial. So we didn't have any <laughs> advertising venue. We couldn't do anything. The week we opened, we didn't have anything. We still continued. And then, of course, we got killed by the critics anyway. So. Well, I think that this is this still. <laughs> you're, the, you're the little engine that could. Because I think that what, what, what's happened is you've told us that you did this show out of, uh, against all odds. Everything was, coming, was, was coming, going against you. And you finally brought it to fruition. And then. You get the critics, yes, and yeah. then you get the critics. But somehow you're still alive. That was a month ago. So well, we are because we kind of have undying faith. We also, if we get 400 folks in there who stamp and laugh and have a great time, this show's a good time. But I think the problem with the critics is that New York critics only review art. Urban Cowboy's not art. It's entertainment. It's just a good time. It's a simple story. Most musicals are. Uh, 
it's not rocket science here. It's just wonderful. Also, and if we can get people in, they like it. You know, it's unfair for a critic to review a show and, and say what he thinks it should have been instead of, I mean, t two of the basic uh, tenets of criticism are what are they trying to do and how well did they do it. Uh, they never, uh, they very seldom do that anymore. It's about, it's so personalized as to what I think it should be. You know, well, who cares what you think it should be? What we're, try we're not trying to do what you think it should be. We're trying to do what we want to do. I think it's very, uh, it is a common criticism today of, of, of our reviewers. Uh, instead of taking a, a, a look at what's on stage and evaluating it, uh, they do bring often preconceptions to their reviews and they speak of the, of the film, they speak of, of what they would rather have seen up there rather than just what's there. And I think many and times, excuse me, also that they don't really write for the constituents that are reading them, um, especially in the suburban markets, because I, I feel that they all, that many of them, and, and they're all very good writers, but they really want to make a name for themselves, and I think a show like Urban Cowboy, and I've been involved with shows that have gotten bad reviews before and have gotten killed, most notably, speaking of Bernadette Peters, Annie Get Your Gun, which had a, a horrible review in the New York Times, uh, and also Grease, which we did. And those shows, the base audience for those shows were people from New Jersey and Long Island and Westchester and the suburbs. The writers that review for some of those papers really don't take that into consideration that those people would enjoy or could possibly enjoy a, a show like that. And I think that's, that's a big problem, whether they could have like a separate reviewer or like a man on the street reviewer or sort of like the, the Zagat reviews, which are now in the Wall Street Journal or Zagat listings, which are in the Wall Street Journal every week. I think would help because there are shows that can definitely overcome bad reviews and there's been a history of them. Even Thoroughly Modern Millie last year didn't get slammed once by the Times, it got slammed twice by the Times. Um, so if you can run long enough and you can build up word of mouth, the reviews essentially are forgotten after a couple of weeks. And, you know, and that's what we and what other shows like Millie and Footloose and, and shows that ran a long time in Greece tried to do. The, I was uh, interested to uh, realize on this show that the greatest percentage of our audience comes from New Jersey. Uh, it, when we track it, uh, it's not from uh, Manhattan. And I think that, uh, Lena, you mentioned that, uh, you all mentioned that you used to go out of town and, uh, and at that time you got reviews and you used to learn something from the reviews. Well, but, but those guys were critics, they weren't reviewers. I mean, they, they had the schooling and the knowledge to be a, a critic. You know, you, you loved going to Boston because Elliot Norton not only would write a a review that was constructed, but he would meet with the writers and the producers, and uh, uh, as the guy in Chicago used to do, Claudia Cassidy. And Claudia Cassidy, absolutely. But did you um, did you learn anything from the reviews, either in Florida or even here? Have you learned anything from those reviews that that could be constructive along the way? I mean, this is a show you're going to no, never I don't constructive. Think so. well, but they can be. This is this is a show no. that you're going to well, continue. I think, I think to tour. The thing about the reviews in Florida that we got were that they pointed to things that we all planned on changing anyway. I mean, so I mean, we looked at the reviews in Florida. We said, yes, we agree with all of that. As soon as we get a chance to work on the show, we'll be happy to do that That's for you. That's true. And so, we, you know, we did. We came back to New York. And, I, you know, if, uh, if anyone in Florida wants to take credit for having changed the show, then they can. No, in fact, we were going to do all of that anyway. So uh, what we're going to do is uh, try to find out 
what, how, what, how, do you, how are you able to keep this alive? You've, you've got bad notices. You, you have great faith in the show. Uh, very few audiences were, were coming there. But notwithstanding that, you still were able somehow well, to put it together. We are struggling. We are struggling now, still. But that was mainly Chase who uh, stepped in and, well. and kept us alive. We posted a notice uh, the day after we opened because the reviews were so terrible. And we started getting phone calls from people. And I finally got smart enough to say, well, would you make us a priority loan? So we Because <laughs> we'd, we'd dissipated our contingencies in our budget with the musician strike. And we were pretty broke. So we needed money to Did you not have any advance sale? We had, <coughs> yes, we had, um, we had a little over a million dollars advance sale. But a lot of it was in theater parties, and as soon as the reviews came out, they canceled. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of dollars of, in theater parties canceled when the review came out. And they have a right to do that. Uh, they do, <laughs> sure, yeah. I think that uh, <coughs> would be a good time. Now, let's just take a pause. Let's hear from Isabel Stevenson, and then we'll pick up on the story of how this little engine is still surviving. Mm -hmm. Before we get back to the American Theater Wing's working the theater seminar on production, I would like to remind you that these seminars are only one of the many year-round programs that the Wing undertakes. You're probably familiar with the American Theatre Wing's Tony Awards, which is given for achievement of excellence in the Broadway theatre. But we also have an important grants program, providing aid to off and off-off-Broadway theatres. We have expanded our scholarships to promising students to pursue studies in the theatre arts. And we offer a comprehensive guide to careers in the theater to those seriously interested in entering the profession. As the longest job is charity, dating back from World War I and World War II, and a famous stage or canteen, all of our programs are designed to reward and promote excellence in the theater. We just love to introduce young people and their families to theater and the magic it unfolds. We take great pride in the work we do. We remain grateful to our members and everyone else whose contributions help make possible the dynamic programs of the American Theatre Wing. Our work is so important to the theatre and the community, and we are proud to be a part of this exciting industry. And so now, let's return to our panel on production, Urban Cowboy, and our moderator, President of the American Theatre Wing, Roy A. Sumlio. Roy? Thank you, Isabel. Thank you. I think we've been a, a little negligent here in, in one aspect as we continue now. Let's talk hard dollars for a minute, if we can. I think the only dollar we heard mentioned no, it was maybe the $50,000 that Mike Nichols uh, put up originally, <laughs> and maybe the $500 an hour but or that's, day. That's <laughs> what we did the show on. <laughs> Let, let's see if we can get it in perspective. Uh, you, you've uh, got $50,000 to get you into uh, the out of the workshop? No, we, no, we raised $150,000 yeah. for the workshop, actually. You, you raised $150,000, mm -hmm. and, and, and did you spend that? Sure. Almost, oh, with a few thousand. Do, do you want to explain the, um, the, the continuing interest that somebody has if they put money up for a workshop? How does that work with you? Uh, well, it's called front money, and uh, somebody who puts, uh, invests in a workshop has the right to, uh, if the show moves, uh, leave that in as an investment uh, for which they get double 
what a normal investment would get. Mm -hmm. uh, or when the show is capitalized, they can take their money out. Uh, the, the people who invested in our workshop uh, chose to leave it in as an investment. And so they get, it's a great advantage to putting up money on that risk. Uh, I think maybe everybody should know that. In other yes. words, if you put up money, front money, that is, uh, that, that's being expended for a workshop, you have a, a, a lot more double. You, you have double the opportunity to, uh, when you're getting your money back, you're right. going to get two points instead of one if that's what you put up. Right. Well, that's, a, I think, and, and, and don't forget, do Chase and I have, to, and, and Lonnie, we have done some hits, and Jason too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in which case, people who invested with us made a lot of money that's right. mean, on gross indecency and uh, the Dame beauty, beauty queen Dame. of Lena sure. Ann right. and Dame Edna. Uh, well, I think the list goes on, but uh, the. Um, uh, where do you, how do you find this $150,000? Well, you have case? to go to friends. It's, you can't go to uh, strangers because you, you have nothing to show them. But are you looking for corporate money at that time, or are you just going to individuals to? Just people you know. And how, what's the smallest amount of money that you, uh, people contribute toward that in the smallest amount? $5,000? Well, say? it could be whatever could you, be whatever you, you like, want. but we were fortunate in, in uh, we had three people to do 50000 each. Well, that, yeah, that's very good. So now you have this 150, and you spent it, or virtually all of it, you said, on the workshop. Right. And you knew you were going to go to Broadway. Somebody put some figures down on paper. No, we didn't know we were going to Broadway. We knew we were going to try to find somewhere out of town to go. And we spoke with uh, the people who run Minneapolis, uh, uh, St. Paul. Mm -hmm. we, we were speaking to some regional theaters when uh, Arnold Middleman came into the picture with Coconut Grove. Aha. Uh -huh. So. And then Coconut Grove then, you gave, uh, I think you said you gave them enhancement money. Right. And do you want to tell us how much that was? 800000 wasn't yes. it? Yes. $800,000. So you paid $800,000 to learn that they, didn't, they couldn't accommodate you uh, in physical <laughs> production. Well, and they, con they contributed about 750000 Sure, yeah. So that's about what they would normally pay to do a show uh, for the, right. those four weeks. Right. So you... So with your so now you had a million and a half uh, to put a show on. And to see if we're going to go to Broadway. To put it on for to make the decision then. Right. And obviously you made that decision because you wouldn't be here if you hadn't. Uh, well, you might be here, but you wouldn't. But the, uh, Urban Cowboy wouldn't have been here. Uh, so now, having made that decision with this, and you spent the full million and a half, the full. Yes, that was yes, yes we did. Some but of it on who pizza. Who paid for the guys to, to come in from New York? We did. So well, as it turned out, we did. That's another mm -hmm. sad story. <laughs> <laughs> Artie Sicardi and, and his troop. His That's troop it. arrived en masse. Right. Uh, I should explain that. Artie Sicardi is the leading technical supervisor and uh, can get anybody out of any technical problem they That's have. True. And uh, he's probably represented on Broadway. Uh, Gypsy at the moment. Uh, well, everything. He's got <laughs> mo most every show. When, and, and, uh, and, Artie has a saying, when you tell him what it is, his answer is usually, no problem. <laughs> and then he sorts out the problem himself, <laughs> and he solves it for you. Mm -hmm. uh, but somewhere then you put numbers on paper then to decide after that that you're going to come go further. Well, we always knew that the New York show would cost about $4 million. Uh, and uh, because of the uh, overages in, <coughs> pardon me, in Florida, we raised it to $4.5 million. Which is still, as you well know, very inexpensive for, for, for a, a, a musical. musical. That's very, right. that's rather modest. 
the four and a half million dollars that, that then you decided to capitalize that, what kind of an entity did you use? LLC, Limited Liability Corporation. Right. So, and, uh, and uh, you are the, are you the managing General member? Partner. You are the managing yes. member, right. Leonard and, and myself. You two are. That means that uh, you have the liability. But nobody has any liability, but you, you are in charge. Yes. What it really uh -huh. means, well, we have the emotional <laughs> liability of you're not going to let people that you work with all the time uh, on other shows not get paid if something should happen. Uh, of course. Uh, and, and I think the loyalty that Lonnie mentioned earlier is a, a, a very, a very apparent here. Yes, but that, that touches on another subject, which is uh, the, one of the reasons the show is still running is thanks to these people who have waived their royalties. That's right. You want to, you want, want to explain how that works? And as everybody's entitled to, uh, to a certain amount of money each week, those the creative staff. And so uh, t what, what is the situation now? Well, we asked everybody to waive their royalties. Uh, w w uh, the argument is that the longer we run, the greater possibility there is for a road tour, and uh, the more we can charge for a road tour. There, we've also had uh, inquiries from Las Vegas, and we do have a, uh, a deal with uh, London uh, for a London production. Uh, the, the longer we can stay alive in New York, the <coughs> pardon me, the more likely it is that all of that will happen. And, and then everybody, all of these, <coughs> the minute I start talking about waving, I lose my <laughs> <laughs> So <coughs> it's the most embarrassing thing in the world, next to raising money, is to have to ask people to waive their royalties when they've been killing themselves to get a show on. Uh, and the only way you can make money, if you're a creative person, is on your weekly royalties. And these guys have all waived theirs as have all of the uh, um, vendors who supply us with lighting equipment and sound equipment and so forth. And if you had any stars who were on percentage in a show, they would likewise be asked to well, do that. Well, uh, yes, they would. Uh, <coughs> but every show that I do, I, uh, everybody's on minimum through till opening night. Uh, even, even on The Goodbye Girl, Bernadette and Mar Martin Short were on minimum till opening night in New York, which is, uh, you know, $1,200 a week. Chase, along with Urban Cowboy, you were also involved in Off-Broadway with uh, the comedians? I did an enhancement with the comedians. Unfortunately, it got poor reviews, so we weren't able to move it any place. It was a <coughs> wonderful show, very serious. Piece. What's the difference in contracts with Off-Broadway with the comedians and Urban Cowboy? Uh, the Off-Broadway is uh, less than half in salaries for sure. equity. Yeah. And there are no stagehand unions in most of the off-Broadway theaters. Uh, even the Little Schubert only has uh, uh, two union stagehands, and their salaries are commensurate with other off-Broadway uh, work workers. You mentioned going to the league before. Do you have to register off-Broadway with the league as well? There is an off-Broadway league with whom you register, right. but it's mm -hmm. apart from the Broadway league. Well, now you have, uh, back to uh, our financing, you had, uh, you decided you were going to, you needed four and a half million dollars. Well, part of that had already been spent in Florida. That included what we had expended on the workshop and the Florida enhancement. How, uh, how do you, before you tell us how you raised that money, um, how do you break that out? How much of that is, uh, is scenery? How much of that is for press? How much of that is cast? Uh, how, how do you generally? <coughs> 
give some rough ideas of how that money is spent. Well, the bulk of it is scenery, uh, almost a million bucks in scenery. And uh, we spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on advertising. Our, our commercial, what, what did that, you remember what that cost? The commercial? By the time we bought the time and produced it, it was, uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. So, well, that's still, you still have a couple more million, two or three more million to explain. Well, we went shopping. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the cast, well, the you cast have fees for all the creative people. The and lighting, advances, designer, royalty advances, advances are enormous. Yes, that's mm -hmm. right, for and different uh, things. Well, you had transportation. Well, uh, also the ta the take in was a hundred was uh, six hundred thousand dollars. The take in meaning you, well, from the time you walk into the theater with your uh, bringing in your lights and your scenery, and especially when you have a complicated uh, uh, set, uh, it took us four weeks to get everything in. And this is not a big show. This is not Gypsy. Uh, uh, technically, it's not <coughs> Gypsy. Um, it's not Gypsy in any other way either, I guess. But. Uh, it's just enormously expensive. It's about thirty-five to forty thousand a day for a ticket. Those are labor costs on, on a show. Uh, and in, you know, we're talking about the old days. We used to close in New Haven on a, a Saturday night and open in Boston on Tuesday with with turntables and everything else that we had. Now, if you're coming in from out of town, it takes uh, two to four weeks to uh, get everything into the theater and program properly before the cast can come on stage. Um, yes, I used to, they used to refer to it as uh, the number of trucks. Yeah, I don't know exactly. That's right. you have. Yeah. If it's a three-truck show, it's a big it's show. A, <laughs> but you can uh, fourteen. But it's not about trucks anymore because it's all about the computers and uh, making everything work technically. But I think it's time is what you're saying. It, it, the cost there, it's a great deal, is time. Yeah, it's labor costs. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, so you're, uh, how much of that four and a half million was earmarked for reserve? Four hundred thousand. Four hundred thousand. All right. So now, then, you open the show, and you didn't get the notices that you wanted, or deserved, or expected, mm -hmm. and uh, immediately put up your notice, mm -hmm. which meant that you had one week in which you were going to close. Then what happened, Chase? Actually, excuse me. Well, we were going to close uh, the next night. Two days. Uh, yeah. the, the the notice went up. We opened on a Thursday. Mm -hmm. uh, the rotten reviews happened on Friday. We put up the notice Friday night, and we were going to close Saturday. Mm -hmm. Chase was mm -hmm. un in an unusual move, actually not going to, you know, uh, was willing to pay the cast off mm -hmm. for that extra week because the cast needs a week's notice, I guess, or yes. whatever that is. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were going to close actually in a, in a day and a half. And this was kind of a very exciting story, which was uh, we were going to do these cut songs from the show at the curtain call because the cast, I had cut a bunch of songs that the cast loved, and so it was going to be their chance to do them on Broadway after the show had opened. And uh, I was running up on the closing night of the show. We had packed up the show. Everybody's flower, I mean, the cast had costumes. packed up their costumes had been washed, and the dye had been taken out of the costumes. They were packed in the basement. And I ran up the aisle because I had to go introduce these songs. And I ran into Chase, and she said, don't do the songs. And I said, oh, come on. We they kids, they really want to do them. She said, we're running. And so this was 10 minutes before the final curtain of Saturday night, which was to be our last show. I went back to my seat, 
And uh, I was sitting next to my boyfriend, Jeff Blumenkrantz, who wrote some songs, and he said, what, what's happened? I said, we're not closing. What do I do? You know, I, have, <laughs> I have these songs. And, and we're watching the cast bow, and they're weeping. They're crying, and they're weeping. And it, what we haven't said, just, just parenthetically, please, is the cast at the Broadhurst Theatre are the most extraordinary bunch of people I have ever worked with. Through all of the craziness that you've heard, all of the disappointments, all of the set breaking, all of it, they come to the theater, even today, every night, with such joy and cheerfulness and positivity about what they love about the show. They are, for no other reason, go see the show and see this bunch of people. They are extraordinary to watch, and they're amazing. So anyway, they're weeping and crying because they love the show. And I came out to introduce the, uh, the closing songs, and in fact said this was to be our closing night, but I've just run into the greatest producers in the world, Chase Michigan and Leonard Salway, and they've informed me that we are running. Well, pandemonium, <laughs> screaming, <laughs> cheering, crying. It's, it, was, it was one of those great sort of movie nights. From the audience, too, though. The right? audience <laughs> is stopping and cheering, and the, it was just one of those great nights. And uh, so, anyway, that was why well, we, we were supposed to film. close the next day. We <laughs> <laughs> were supposed to close the next day. Right. Well, now, so what was this miracle? How, what brought about the miracle? Well, the, the situation, as I mentioned earlier, was that we no longer had any contingency money because we had dissipated it because of the strike, mm -hmm. primarily. We spent a hundred grand recording the music. We spent $50,000 a week to catch up on rehearsals. It just was gone by the time we opened. And I really started asking people for priority loans so we could have four to six weeks to see if we could build an audience, have some more advertising money and so on and so forth and and everyone pitched in and we raised some priority money uh, and how long do you and, and you were, you are one of the one of the investors in this of priority course. money you personally sure, yourself of course. as well yeah. which goes to show your continued ongoing <laughs> faith in this production you can't not have faith in this production the kids are great well, you know, uh, everyone's done a fabulous job. Monty yeah. said that he had this this extraordinary group of people there and their devotion to the show. Well, uh, I can sit here and tell you it's very clear. You, it starts at the top oh, because no. you've got <laughs> devoted producers. No, they kill who, for Chase. Who are exposed at this point, and they're still doing. Well, the the thing too is that Chase mentioned it briefly, but it's really true. You go to the theater, and whether there's 400 people in the audience or 800 or 1,100, they love it, and it's hard to argue with that. They they stamp and cheer and laugh and have a great time. And it's hard to look at that show and say, it's not a success. It is a success to the people who come. It's just getting en enough of them there so that right. we can make the dollars work. Pete, uh, is there anything that you can do in, 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 in excuse me for a minute. Well, I was just going to say, in terms of what Chase has, has done, uh, we were in all that trouble down in Florida, and the cast was getting uh, very nervous and depressed. Oh, yeah. She gave, wrote a check for $1,000 to everybody in the cast and sent a letter saying, you know, it's never easy and hang in there. Hang in there. And now she's at the theater almost every night just so they'll know she's there and, and uh, not lose the spirit. It's very unusual. I mean, as, as you know, this is a show with two people above the title. This is not a musical with 14 names. Go look at Millie or any of those shows and corporations. This is. This is a mom-and-pop organization. This is Chase Michigan's love that's on the stage, and that's why 
the cast is so supportive, and that's why we're all here because that's amazing. Also, that there are so many Broadway debuts, which is really fourteen amazing to see um, that there are fourteen people making their Broadway debuts in the show, including the two stars. So. It was very. It was a challenge to cast this show. There are no 21-year-old stars on Broadway. You've got to create them. Well, Pete, are you able to get the press in any way uh, supporting this? Here you have this valiant effort being made to save a show. You say the audiences uh, love it when they're there. You've got uh, some wonderful talent up there. I know initially we, we saw some wonderful things uh, from uh, Matt when, when that he was a, a suddenly a new star was discovered. But how about... Well, I have to say, I mean, this to me, as I was telling someone, at the break, it's, it's, it's the creative aspect of this now is, is, and the challenge of it is the most appealing to me. Um, I've worked on shows that are huge hits and I've worked on shows that were not. Um, and even though, like we work on Chicago right now, I mean, that's wonderful and it's been an amazing seven years. Uh, the challenge of doing Urban Cowboy, a show that really needs help, is what I went into this business to do. I mean, it's, it's, it's more exciting for me to really try to change something around or to create something than just sitting back and, and taking the calls. So it, it is a big challenge now, and it's harder because you're hit, you, you know, you run into a wall when you get those reviews at times, and you have to really change people's perceptions and ideas. And, uh, and we're trying to do that, but as, as Leonard said, the longer you run, the longer you run. And I think that's the point. The longer you run, the easier it is, the more receptive they're going to be to sort of help the show out and try to come in and see. And, and, and we're starting to break through that now. And we're starting to uh, get the support that we are looking for because people know that the, the show is really trying and th they know that there's, there's hopefully a life there. But it's... Uh, and Peter's done a, a fabulous job with the show. Uh, we've had an enormous amount of press with the show, in spite of the, uh, the bad notices that we got. Everything from the Today Show to coverage all over the country. Uh, it, uh, he's really done, uh, I mean, every, the, the fax machine just pours out uh, articles <laughs> coming from, uh, I mean, nobody can get through to me that wants to. It's <laughs> <laughs> But he's, he really has done it. I, I think job. that's. I think that's. That's what makes my job a little more exciting and a little more interesting. It, it's very nice to be working on the hits, and it's a prestige thing to be there and just answering phones and just funneling out requests and stuff. But um, to sort of take the creative reins, it, it just like Lonnie is creative and Jason's creative and Chase and Leonard are creative as producers. This is my time to try to. <laughs> Aaron's creative as a writer. <laughs> This is like what about, what about Roy? And Roy's and creative. And Isabel. <laughs> We're all creative, but, but I think that's why this time for me is even a more One exciting more time. One more piece of business on the business. You have to post the bond, right? You yes. What is that and why? Oh, it's two weeks' salary for the actors and uh, one week for the press agents and uh, uh, company managers, and then we have a wardrobe bond, a uh, hair, hairstylist bond. Um, the musicians uh, are, are posted by the theater because they're paid by the theater. Well, the bond is because the managers used to leave people in Peoria uh, with no train fare back home. So now they... Not that you would ever do that. I wouldn't leave them in Peoria. You know better than that. It would be Let Chicago. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars, the bonds. 
which you're asking <laughs> about. Yeah. But you get them back. Yeah. You when do, how do you get it back? After, After the, the show closes. closes. When they're right. sure the pension and welfare and all that has yeah. been paid. Uh, you got the bond. So it's held in escrow, <coughs> Yes. Right. It's just a protective. I mean, with us, with shows, you know, when a show closes, they'll come to us and they'll say, have your bills been paid? Have your expenses been paid? Before they release the bond back to the producer. Well, have you paid out of the bond? Have you paid the union, uh, the actors out of the bond? Never. Oh, yeah. never. Never. Oh, it's an accommodation that the union Well, the first place, we didn't post the bond. Somebody oh. else posted oh. the bond for us. There are some people who don't have to put up money. They just signed a letter. Why? Well, for instance, the Schubert organization, they know they're good for it if anything yeah. happens. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't, the, the same with the Niederlanders and Jew Jamson. Historically, the, there was an arrangement with uh, a few producers and uh, the theater owners that uh, they did not have to put up the cash. The unions accepted their uh, word as their bond. I think we've lost the, the individual producers. Uh, who have that right. Who had that right, and now we're just down to the theater owners who, uh, who can and don't have it's just a question of not laying out uh, tying up cash that's right, right. that's right it's a lot of cash yeah. for instance in london if you belong to the equivalent of the league of american theaters if you are a member of the league in london you don't have to put up a bond i see that's interesting we've never gotten that far i'm not here though because it's the league that, that uh, in that case that uh, the equivalent of the league that that is what does membership in the league entail Two thousand dollars a year plus, and your name is it more now? What, you, no, no, two thousand. But, but <coughs> weekly, uh, and uh, yeah, well, the show has to pay a weekly uh, some co contribution, and you have to have uh, be a, a major producer of a play to uh, become a member of the league. What, what does the show pay? I'm not interested. Was it four hundred a week for a oh, straight it's show? Is six? It's a, well, it's a it's a percentage of the number of tickets now based on the ticket uh, sales. I see. 1.7. I think wow. it's, it's a percent of the number of tickets you sell. That's a lot. That's a lot. That, yeah, that you, it is. Are they waving? <laughs> 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 yes, they do. They are. Yes. I think they do. Everybody has to wave when you wave. Now, what is on your books for the future? <coughs> Suicide. <laughs> I think that I think I'll that uh, we're staying staying with Urban Cowboy. The We're not going to disclose our future yet because we're concentrating on Urban Cowboy. It's a great company. We really want to. I think the future of Urban Cowboy is, is really <laughs> yeah. what uh, what is worth talking about. Do you? Um, are you still working on the show? In other words, if something isn't, are you? We yeah, actually you we put in, we put in cuts a couple of weeks after we opened. I, I looked at it and thought, well, there's stuff Aaron and I had talked about that we'd never done, and gee, that scene could use a couple of seconds off it, and that joke's not landing. And we did a little work, which people were so astonished. We we worked really hard in previews, which people apparently I'm learning don't do that much. No. But we you know ripped it apart, cut songs, mm. added songs, changed scenes, and so we actually did everything we should have done in Florida. Didn't since have time to do. <laughs> and you've done this since the opening. Yeah, yeah we right. well, well, no, no, no. During preview, cosmetic yeah, stuff, yeah, little cosmetic. Opening, I'd say since opening night, we've taken out maybe three and a half, four minutes of the show. Yeah. Yeah. And you, I think you took a number out. Did you not? That, that was in previous. We took out five numbers. Because there's an insert in the playbill though, which shows a different running order. Because the playbill. The opening night playbook. We couldn't change in the last week of right. But you know, Jack O'Brien says shows are never finished; they just open. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 you, I'm sure that you could spend another 
Oh my several God. weeks directing and fixing things. Oh, yeah. I would be sending in my assistant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you only stop when, they, when they, they lock the doors, you know, when they finally say you can't do it anymore. You know, it seems to me that you talked about the problem you had with the uh, bucking bull. I wonder if everybody knows what that is. Maybe I have a little clip uh, of, of the bull itself. Oh, okay. And maybe uh, before we leave this panel, maybe it'd be a good idea to just have sure. a look at what that is. Maybe we can look at that clip now. <laughs> well, we give rides. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, did you say it was not the one that's being used now? Uh, new bull. Right? Well, also that was that was during early in previews. previews. So, so the bull is much faster now. The bull is faster. The lighting cues are different. You can see it. Yeah. And it is a different. It's actually a different bull. When we were in a workshop, uh, Aaron used to take the kids out to this bar in New Jersey that had a bull, and they would practice uh, there. Yeah. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Uh, for, for, did anybody ever get thrown off? Everybody got thrown off. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the it's thing harder than it looks, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing about our show that, that I always say. I said, people have to get thrown because you go to these bars. The guys can't stay on it. An actual bull, guys get thrown off it. They can't make it for eight seconds. They just they fly off of it all night long. There's people going. Bull's not like a horse. It bucks like a, a rocking chair. A bull spins, and you just can't stay on it very long. <laughs> have you tried to chase... Have I tried it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Speaking of not staying on uh, too long, I think we've just, uh, just come to the end and we're not going to be able to stay on any longer on this panel, although we could probably go on for two more hours. I want to thank you so much. This has been an American Theatre Wing Working in the Theatre Seminar coming to you from the Broadcast Center of City University of New York, their Graduate Center. Thank you all for participating. <laughs>